Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new monthly edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes today. American Funds Distributors, Inc. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Bloomberg Audio Studios. Podcasts, radio, news. This is the Bloomberg Daybreak Asia podcast. I'm Brian Curtis, along with Doug Krisner. Join us each day for the stories making news and moving markets in the Asia Pacific. You can subscribe to the show anywhere you get your podcasts and always on Bloomberg Radio, the Bloomberg Terminal and the Bloomberg Business app. Well, joining us now on the program is Chuck Camello, president and CEO at Essex Financial Services, to take a closer look at, at global markets. Let's start off in the United States, Chuck. I, I wonder if the focus switches back to the Fed. Last week, very much not on the Fed. It was really about earnings and specifically NVIDIA that drove markets to these record highs. Uh, this week, do we get back to the macro? Well, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, this, I think we're, we're certainly going to see some macro um, information coming with the Fed and uh, the PCE number that's going to be coming out. That's going to be a key macro number and a big part of um, you know the whole inflation story, which uh, again we we obviously continue to talk about into 2024. But yeah, I, I think you know the entire world uh, practically was waiting for that big Nvidia number last week. They certainly didn't disappoint, and it uh, obviously gave the markets just a tremendous tremendous tailwind. So we heard from Warren Buffett over the weekend. He doesn't see much in the way of a meaningful opportunity right now. He's sitting on a truckload of cash, I think something over $167 billion in the fourth quarter. Does he have a point? I mean, if you're shopping for value right now, there's not much on the shelf. Yeah, I mean, I, well, a couple of things. One, you know, at least he's making probably north of 5% on that big number. So that certainly doesn't doesn't uh, hurt Warren and Berkshire. So <laughs> at least the short rates are very high. So I'm sure he's happy about that. But, but I, said, I, think that, I, think, uh, I think he's certainly right. I mean, there's not a huge compelling buy uh, that is screaming. There are certainly are pockets of opportunity, whether it be opportunities in healthcare, uh, a little bit of, you know, energy, if you want to be a little bit more adventurous, adventurous. But there's big parts of the equity market that haven't participated. You know, healthcare is on the rise, doing better. But even you know, there's a tremendous amount of the value side of the market, small and mid caps, where that have really not participated, um, and you know, could be a very nice opportunity for you know an allocation of somebody's uh, investment dollars. Because again, I agree, there's nothing sc- screaming by at this point. But you know, I think any any pullback with tech is a buying opportunity. And again, small, mid value all you know have uh, have certainly not had the kind of run that uh, that large cap growth has and especially tech he has his own parameters and they are very very strict he's looking for unusually big purchases with unusual value attached to it um, some might say he's he's missed an opportunity in artificial intelligence uh, and and others might say, well, yeah, but that's not really the area that Warren Buffett would buy in. But he did buy Apple, and I think it's still his largest holding. So is it getting more complicated for the Buffett um, team? 
Well, yeah, I mean, you're 100% correct. I mean, what what they're looking for is very different than, you know, what the average investor in the United States is looking for and how they're looking to allocate money. But I think, you know, Warren certainly has missed some of the tech. I mean, he's done unbelievably well in, in so many different investments he's made. Uh, Apple, obviously notwithstanding, but you could argue, and I think he's even said that, um, you know, had he been a little bit more adventurous on, on the tech side of things, that certainly would have been a, a certainly a big positive. But, you know, I, I think the, the other um, you know gentlemen that are running Berkshire Hathaway at this point bring a whole different view on a lot of these different and new exciting areas of the market, especially around tech and AI. So, you know, who knows what the future holds? But, you know, as we say to individual clients, I mean, you know, technology is has been, is, and will continue to be a bigger and bigger part of our lives. And AI has the potential to be a tremendous, you know, generational change, uh, not just for the country, for the world. And, um, you know, better to be involved in some way, shape or form with that than sit on the sidelines. No doubt about that. Uh, But when I think of Berkshire, obviously, there is the insurance company part of the portfolio. Also, a couple of financials, banks, American Express, I think, is still a very large position. And energy, I think he's still building a position in Occidental Petroleum. When you look at the financials, when you look at the energy complex, just those two, are there opportunities? here, Chuck? Yeah, we, we believe there are. So especially in, in both areas. I mean, you've seen um, financial so far have a pretty good start to the year. Uh, you're all, and again, in this environment, it took a while for them to sort of get their legs under them with all the obvious challenges they've had. Um, but, you know, we do think there's opportunities in financials. Energy, you know, continues to go, you know, in and out right now. It tends to be on the outside of things, but you're seeing a lot of consolidation, a lot of mergers in that space. You're, you're also seeing it in, um, in financials with, um, you know, the big credit card merger last week. So, you know, with energy, especially very low P, generally a lot of cash, a lot of good dividend yields. Um, and again, if you're, you know, if you don't want to buy tech, you know, quote unquote, because it's too high and you're looking for an area to get into and to participate, having a certain portion of your portfolio in energy and financials, um, you know, certainly makes a lot of sense for the for, for most investors. Well, a nice segue to Asia might be that Warren Buffett continued to increase his stake in those trading companies in Japan. Uh, he didn't. He, I don't think he's doing much in China. Uh, but if we can swing the conversation around to Japan, we've had these enormous gains, and yet there are still a lot of people pushing Japan. Others might say, "Well, Japan's had a good run. Now maybe you should look at China." How does that equation work in Chuck Camello's head? Yeah, well, you know, so you know, Japan's interesting. I mean, they they've finally reached the you know got back to the old high. It took eight thousand three hundred eighty three days <laughs> since December of nineteen eighty nine <laughs> to get there. So worth the wait. But I I would certainly say you know um, you know if we're if we're allocating to that part of the world, we're generally tending to be more towards Japan. China is has a host of issues. You know. Um, I'm not sure anybody can quite understand exactly what they're going to do. You know, we had the recent rules about institutional investors not being able to buy or sell in the first, uh, I forget, first 30 minutes or hour, beginning or end of the trading day. You know, uh, some people have said it's uninvestable. I'm not going to go there. But I'll just say there's so many other compelling and wonderful investment opportunities here in the U.S. and around the world that doesn't involve China directly that I, for the average person that we work with, you're hard-pressed to fly to figure a reason why you're going to go there. I, I quite candidly, I'd rather be in emerging markets in India uh, before I would I'd want to go to China at this point. So we were talking about M&A uh, a moment ago. Here we have this deal where Nippon Steel, it wants to take over U.S. Steel. Do you think that deal should be allowed to go through? 
Well, I think there's probably there's a couple different um, ways to look at that, right? I mean, one is just the pure financials and economics of it, which probably make a, a lot of sense. The other part is, I mean, U.S. Steel is you know a, a, a you know a national company with a with a long storied history, both really really good in terms of uh, World War II and the storied uh, history of that company. Uh, which you know, an American company being purchased by a Japanese company of of that magnitude um, stokes a lot of nationalism uh, fears, and whether rightly or wrongly, uh, it's it's going to be tough. And and I think on the economics of it, I think it probably makes a ton of sense. Um, I think it probably should get done, given you know the benefits. I think that U.S. Steel, its employees, shareholders, et cetera, would see. Um, but, you know, I, that's going to be something coming out of Washington, D.C., and I, I gave up a long time ago trying to guess what's going to come out of there. The other interesting segue that I've got for you this morning, uh, we talked about Buffett maybe not looking so actively in China, but obviously he made a big play on BYD and made a ton of money on that investment uh, more than a decade ago. I, I note that VinFast, uh, you know, is sort of rising up in, in Vietnam. But for a, a company like Essex Financial Services, do you look for those kind of home runs in Asia, something maybe that can play out over the next 10 years, or is that just too big a bet? Yeah, well, I, I would certainly say I mean, we're, we are investors, not traders. So what we're looking for are the best money managers that can find those opportunities for us, whether it's through separately managed accounts, whether it's through mutual funds or ETFs or whatever it might be. We're looking for the managers that can find those types of companies. You know, we're, you know, we're, uh, you know, $3.4 billion organization. We're, you know, we're not, uh, we don't have a team of analysts scouring the globe for the up and coming, you know, electric vehicle manufacturer that, you know, might be in, you know, the second year of its existence. We're looking for the best money managers on behalf of our clients to be able to get that kind of exposure. Yeah. Okay. Out of time, unfortunately, Chuck, but thanks very much for joining us. Chuck Camello, president and CEO at Essex Financial Services. The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Joining us now in our studios is Danny Lee, Bloomberg Asia Transport reporter, to take a closer look at this. So, Danny, great to have you on. It's one thing to say that uh, BYD uh, will rival brands like Ferrari and Lamborghini in price. It's another to say in terms of sales and attractiveness. What are we hearing about this early model that might lead us to think that, yeah, yeah, they could actually rival Ferrari and Lamborghini? Yeah, so BYD's push into the the luxury segment, they've already got one 
uh, one car out there at the moment, a hybrid, and that has sold around almost 4,000 units in just a couple of months. And when you're selling it for already 1 million yuan, so that's about... Uh, that's a, still a huge chunk of change that really adds to the top line and the bottom line and it's all important having these luxury vehicles that they can sell at much higher prices given what is going on in the broader market in china the world's biggest auto and ev market there is a big price war going on yeah and i think that it's also interesting that this will initially be sold not just in the chinese market and i'm looking at the comparison here if you're saying that this new vehicle were to rival ferrari and lamborghini i don't think that there is a chance at least under the current situation that this this vehicle ends up in europe anytime soon byd is laying the groundwork particularly to export and you know, particularly to export its luxury brands. And so we will see more details over the coming several months as they lay the groundwork for that. So clearly putting it out in the China market first, which it knows best, it is able to then just you know, get a feel for what Chinese consumers like about this car, if they need to tweak anything. And, and just to really set a benchmark, particularly given there is a lot of demand for luxury cars in China. You now, given the backdrop still of the, the China economy, there is still that demand for in the luxury segment. And you know, whilst volumes are overall small, this is where BYD by producing domestically and selling domestically, it has an edge, particularly over some of the European luxury brands. When it comes to BYD, we often talk about uh, how the U.S. market is kind of out of reach because of the 27.5% tariffs, and we often talk about Europe. In fact, we've already done so uh, in this discussion. But I'm curious about, you know, there are a lot of rich people around the world. Uh, I'm curious about whether or not, you know, this offers an interesting offer to uh, to fairly wealthy people in other parts of the world um, that maybe are looking for something different. Now, ultimately, perhaps, and particularly when it comes to the EV segments, you know, to have a supercar that is as powerful and capable that can, you know, you can, you can actually use, you know, for long distances and really use the power, you know, given the specs of this supercar and BYD developing its own batteries, you know, it's quite confident in its tech and its ability that this supercar has a you know, has the the durability to, you know, to cope just like with the those gas guzzling fossil fuel supercars, which you know you can you know take take along the road. People don't want to necessarily transition because they, you know with the supercars you're using a lot of power, you're using a lot of power. So therefore, you know, you need something a EV equivalent that is you know absolutely capable uh, for those the needs of the owners who really want to thrash their cars. So we talk a little bit about the speed that this U9 is capable of. I mean. Uh, 100 kilometers per hour in uh, 2.36 seconds and top speed 309 kilometers per hour how does the battery function under those conditions i mean if, if you're really pushing this vehicle to its limit do you draw down uh, on the battery very quickly not not necessarily byd's batteries they're uh, very very you know they're in in the market they're very good and they are uh, very mature kind of technology so you know there's a lot of power under there that you can draw on and it doesn't you know draw down the the battery or the power in any significant way you know it's designed just like any other car but of course with more power you are obviously going to you will eventually draw down the battery but uh you know given its technology it's developed over the years it's uh, really quite a capable unit 
So I did that ant story right before you uh, to get you a little nervous that, oh, my God, are they going to ask me about ant? Uh, uh, just to keep you on your toes. I want to keep you on your toes with this one, too. Uh, so BYD is selling this supercar EV. Uh, let me ask you a question I don't know the answer to. Uh, do Ferrari and Lamborghini have all EV-powered sports cars? They, you know, clearly they're developing their, their products as they go. Are they quite there with their technology? That does remain to be seen. But, but clearly, you know, this is something that all EV, you know, all you know, legacy uh, fossil fuel uh, brands are looking at uh, in future. How do they get the best kind of EV technology for their cars? Because again, people just like the feel of, of fossil fuel cars. They're very, very different. And the, the sounds that they make, yes. but having been behind... <laughs> Uh, uh, you know these some of these some of these electric vehicles. You know even some of the just the you know, the sporty sedans. My goodness, the the you step on the accelerator and you're thrown back into your seat. The torque, uh, the ferocity you get immediately from these electric vehicles is quite something. Danny, just remind us where we are in terms of EV, the tension in the European market right now, and the idea that China could import into Europe right now. I think that the Europeans feel as though. Uh, um, Chinese uh, EV makers are trying to, to dump a lot of inventory on the European market. Is that not problematic for BYD, whether we're talking an entry-level vehicle or even something as sophisticated as this U9? Well, clearly BYD does make a lot of affordable cars in China, but the context is that when it goes over to Europe, they're not that affordable in respect of, uh, you know, the, the prices. The, the prices are still actually quite expensive, uh, relatively speaking, in Europe. So the idea that they're dumping, it's not necessarily a misnomer, but but clearly there is a you know, there is a lot of worry in Europe. But actually, the the worry extends over to the US, and where you hear the likes of someone like Elon Musk saying that, you know, they're quite concerned that if there was no trade uh, barriers, then. Chinese EVs and Chinese cars would be all over the world, frankly. There's nothing to stop them apart from barriers right now. And the 800-pound gorilla in the room would be Tesla. Uh, is Tesla modeling anything similar to this, to this Yang Wang U9 in China? There isn't. Tesla has its very uh, slim lineup. Clearly, its focus is on the Cybertruck, which we have all seen, um, this hulking beast uh, of unit. But then there's also the their affordable car that they're working on at the moment, which is going to you know, come through towards the end of 2025. So there's nothing really on the Tesla front. Is that something that they're interested in? Probably not when you're trying to create volume um, at scale. So this is probably not necessarily within Tesla's realm. But you know, when it comes to margins, that's all very interesting. So you mentioned, I think, that the this new vehicle uh, was, I think, the company delivered what a little more than 3,600 units as of the end of January. Is that right? Yeah. Do you think that the overall market in China can support something that is this richly priced at scale? I mean, where you're talking about you know really doing uh, enough in sales to justify production yeah i mean the the you know, even for the that what seems like a low amount of unit sales the the backlog that 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 this young one has uh has this young one brand has reported um in the previous months is somewhere closer to thirty thousand for some of this existing lineup so you know with that in mind when you translate that into real dollars and at least a million uh yuan in pricing that's that's pretty good on the bottom line so there mm. there is a demand even if it's small but you know the fact that they're able to generate a much more yeah. cash over uh you know one of their more affordable ev units it you know still makes good sense
And we have seen from uh, from Ralph Lauren and Louis Vuitton that uh, luxury is holding up pretty well in China. This might be a good move by BYD. We'll save that for the next discussion once we see a little bit more in terms of performance. Danny Lee has been with us, Bloomberg Asia Transport Reporter. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new monthly edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes today. American Funds Distributors, Inc. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Well, in South Korea, the widespread walkout by trainee doctors is heading toward its second week. They are protesting the government's plan to boost the number of physicians. But the government doesn't appear to be backing off in any way. Let's take a closer look now with Bloomberg's John Herskovitz, uh, Bloomberg East Asia government editor. He joins us from our studios in Tokyo. John, thanks for making time for us. Can you begin by giving me a, a scope of the doctor shortage in South Korea? Uh, sure. And the overall situation is uh, South Korea has one of the lowest percentage of doctors to population in the developed world. So the government sees this as a problem, especially with the country rapidly aging. It sees the need to get more doctors in more places, and they're planning to increase the number of seats at medical schools by 2,000 from next year. They're currently at about 3,000 a year. So this is what they see as the way that will help get the problem fixed to put more doctors into the field. And it's going to take some time to do because um, this would be first-year medical school students. It's about a six-year process in school and then going on to uh, internships and the trainee doctors, who the people yeah. who are walking off the job now. You wouldn't think that 2,000 uh, jobs or slots uh, would be such a big deal for a country that has a pretty sizable population. Uh, and I think it also brings comments from critics that th- this really doctors wanting to protect their levels of income. I suggest, uh, and you probably agree, that it's more complicated than that. Exactly. And the doctors see this plan as not addressing the fundamental problems. They see work uh, difficulties in the workplace, um, difficulties with malpractice insurance, and also with um, pay for some of the more difficult uh, specialties like obstetrics, uh, emergency medical care. But um, in terms of OECD data, South Korean doctors rank among the highest in the world of pay compared to the average wage in the country. So the public really is uh, standing behind the government on this one. Um, A major survey showed about three-quarters of the public support the plan to increase the number of seats at medical schools. It's helped the support rate for the president rebound in recent weeks. So 
the public has is frustrated with waiting times. They want to see doctors. And with this walkout, you're seeing uh, surgeries being canceled. People are being turned away from emergency rooms. Um, waiting times are getting longer. So the public, which has already sided with the government, is facing more frustration in terms of being able to access the health care system. Well, there's a parliamentary election, I think, that going is going on in April, so maybe that's part of uh, what's happening. But I'm curious, if you look at the average physician in South Korea, how long do they work? How many years uh, do they clock in for their uh, career before they consider retirement? I think it would be comparable to other parts of the world. Um, you know, it, it is a highly developed medical system. They have national health, South Korea's national health care. It's a really... Um, when I lived in South Korea, I, I took part in the uh, healthcare system. It's it's a really thorough, comprehensive system, um, and the doctors are comparable to what you would see in other parts of the world. But um, they are not as many in number as you would find yeah. in a place like the U.S. Yeah, I mean, it's it's astonishing. Here in Hong Kong, you have both the private and public um, hospital systems, and uh, the, the doctors in the public hospital system are, are terribly overworked. I mean, they're pulling 18-hour shifts, uh, that that type of thing. Um, the doctors in the private healthcare system are pretty comfortable, uh, and it's very difficult for the government to get past the lobby to bring more doctors in. They fight tooth and nail uh, to keep the situation as is. I'm curious whether there's any Parallel uh, on that uh, in South Korea are doctors terribly overworked, particularly in in some of the more public hospitals. Uh, yes, and you'll find incredibly long hours, especially for the trainee doctors. I don't know how that compares to other parts of the world, the uh, working hours compared to Japan or Hong Kong, but there is a lot of strain on doctors, especially early on in their careers. It's a, it's a very difficult situation for them to be in, and the government is thinking that if you bring more doctors on board, it will help alleviate some of the strains. So I mentioned the fact that in April the parliamentary elections will be happening. Can you put this conversation in that context? What, what do the elections mean for this? Uh, uh, one of the key focuses is going to be this election. Yoon's conservative People Power Party is trying to retain, regain the majority in parliament. The uh, progressive Democratic Party and its allies control the majority now, and they're much more, they traditionally have been much more uh, focused on labor groups, much more of a pro-labor camp. So with this, the, this in terms of public polling, seems to show more support for Yoon and the government's position, which could help his party take more seats when the election comes. Uh, South Korean presidents serve a single uh, five-year term. Yoon would, if he his party got the majority in parliament, for the, rema the remaining three years in his term, there would be an end to gridlock. He could pass his... Uh, Party, his party could pass policies uh, more business-friendly, taking a tougher line on labor unions. So there's a lot at stake on this. The election will determine how Yoon's remaining three years in office will be, and the, if it'll be gridlock or if he'll get a majority. And the plan to add another 2,000 slots for medical schools, yeah, most definitely. John, thank you for yeah. making time to chat with us. John Herskowitz is a Bloomberg East Asia government editor, helping us understand this walkout, widespread walkout uh, by doctor trainees in South Korea heading toward its second week. 
This has been the Bloomberg Daybreak Asia podcast, bringing you the stories making news and moving markets in the Asia Pacific. Visit the Bloomberg podcast channel on YouTube to get more episodes of this and other shows from Bloomberg. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen, and always on Bloomberg Radio, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business app. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.